It's like it only takes a little pin to pop a balloon, right? You don't need a big gun with a great big bullet in it to pop a balloon. You just need a tiny pin, right? You just need a little bit of faith in order to see God's power do some great things. Take your Bible, please, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 17. Matthew chapter number 17. What an amazing story we have in the Bible about um, this man and his son. Today we're going to talk about the power of a tiny bit of faith. The power of a tiny bit of faith. Now God tells us in the Bible that he wants us to trust him. Old and New Testament, again and again, God is telling us that we are to trust in him. Another word for trust is faith. Basically, it means trust. In fact, the Bible itself says, the just shall live by faith. Those who have been justified in the eyes of God are to live their lives by faith. Old and New Testament, it says, the just shall live by faith. That means that all born-again Christian men and women are to trust God for their daily, ordinary matters of life. That would include what we eat, what we wear, where we work, where we go to church. All these are ordinary matters of life and we are to trust God. But it also means that we're to trust God in extraordinary things of life. Because I think you'll agree there are two categories, it seems, of life. We have the ordinary and then we have extraordinary matters of life. Such as, whom are we to marry? Such as, what house am I to buy? That's a major purchase, by the way. Or a car today. Boy, the price of cars today used to be the price of houses uh, years ago. We're paying now for our cars what we used to pay for our houses years ago. Any big adventure for the Lord, these are all extraordinary things. And we obviously need to trust God for these things. You know, actually in all these things and more, we are to trust God. Now, because God asks us to trust him, we find, it should be no surprise, but we find the Bible is filled with exciting stories of men and women who've done amazing things for God. The book of Hebrews is an example. In chapter 11, I want to rattle off a few verses for you. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's, that chapter is known as the, as the hall of faith. Men and women who did great things for God. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not as seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. By faith, he, that's Moses, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, they, that's the Israelites, passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, assaying to do, were drowned. 
By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. And the list doesn't stop there. It goes on. It says about these people who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now, are you and I trusting God for the ordinary things of life? I hope we are. But the ordinary things of life will not give us purpose and meaning They will just give us existence. In order to have a life of purpose and meaning, we must move into the extraordinary things of life. When you come to the end of your life, whenever that will be, when you come to the end of your life, what sort of life will you wish that you had lived? An ordinary life or an extraordinary life? The choice is yours. All of us, can have, can live an an extraordinary life by putting our faith in God. So today, we're going to learn about the power of faith. Even just a tiny bit of faith. That's all it takes. So let's pray first, and then let's look at this story. Our Heavenly Father, help us all today. Open the eyes of our understanding. Please make your word come alive to us. Cause it to burn in our hearts that we would know, yes, this is the way. We need to walk in it. Please give us faith. Give us the power and ability to live extraordinary lives for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Well, our story today takes place at the foot of what is known as the Mount of Transfiguration. It's called that because Jesus, Peter, James, and John went to the top of this mount, and there Jesus' clothes were transfigured, and Jesus became like, full of the glory of God. And Peter, James, and John saw this and they witnessed Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. It's a very exciting, very exciting story in this chapter. But this story here takes place at the foot of this mount. Now, in verse 14, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they have just come down from this mount, which was probably Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor probably means nothing to you. So I have a map. Put that map up, would you please? Now this map shows you the map of Israel, the Holy Land. Pardon me while I turn and face it. And there's the Dead Sea. And here's the Sea of Galilee. And here's the Mediterranean over here. This dot represents Jerusalem. So this will give you some idea of sort of the Holy Land and where we're talking. And right here, this triangle represents Mount Tabor. You see, it's in the area of Galilee. There's the Sea of Galilee, which, by the way, my wife and I had the opportunity to go out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee about a dozen years ago. We went out and we scooped up a little bit of water, the Sea of Galilee, and we tightened the the cap. We still have that water from the Sea of Galilee at home. Every time I look at it, in fact, I've, I've got water from the Mediterranean as well and from the Dead Sea as well. And from the Jordan River as well. I wanted to, you know, not miss anything. 
And so by uh, carrying a wee bit of water home with me, uh, it, boy, oh boy, is it ever, it keeps alive the experience of being in Israel. If you ever have the opportunity to go to Israel, you ought to, because you will never read the Bible the same after. It will change you when you walk where Jesus walked. It's a lot of fun. It's expensive, though. <laughs> uh, but is it worth it? I think it is. Anyhow, um, I want to show you a picture that someone took in the late 1800s with an old-fashioned camera. That is a picture of Mount Tabor, uh, way up in northern Israel, outside of Galilee, Sea of Galilee. And I want to you see how, how that hump looks almost like, a, a, I don't know, a, a half of a soccer ball or something, and you know, or a chip dip bowl or something that someone has turned upside down but that's what Mount Tabor looks like I have a picture a more recent picture I want to show you if you were to go to Israel that's what you would see that's Mount Tabor there so this sort of just gives you an idea Jesus Peter James and John were on the top of this and they had this wonderful mountaintop experience but they came down and at the foot of the 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 base of the mountain there was this scene transpiring and we pick up in verse 14 and it says when they were come to the multitude there came to him came to Jesus a certain man we don't know his name it just says a certain man kneeling down to him this is a sign of worship and humility and respect and when you and I come into the presence of Jesus we need to have a, a similar mind frame and a heart frame we need to kneel in his presence it's a sign of worship and humility and respect and so he said to Jesus in verse 15 Lord have mercy on my son for he is lunatic the word lunatic comes from a Latin word lunaticus lunaticus and literally what it means is moonstruck You've spent too much time out under the moon and it's done something to you. You are moonstruck. It referred to basically insanity. You're out of your mind if you're moonstruck. Back in the Middle Ages, people believed uh, that to be moonstruck, to be lunatic, they believed that the moon affected your mental state and behavior and they believed that you would be possessed by demons. The demons exhibited erratic behavior. They were called lunatic. The term was later used to describe people who suffered from various mental illnesses, such as what we know as bipolar or schizophrenia, other disorders. Listen to this. Characterized by mood swings or psychotic episodes. Now, if you've ever experienced a mood swing, it doesn't mean you're a lunatic. So just rest comf comfy there, okay? We're not talking that. <laughs> the term lunatic has been diminished in recent years. Uh, it's considered derogatory. It's considered offensive. But here's something interesting. Back in the early 1900s, the early 1900s, they came up with a word to describe alcoholic drinks. Gin and scotch and all these cocktails and mixed drinks and things like that. They came up with a, a, an expression for these alcoholic drinks. Can you, 
Can you guess what it might be? Has the word lunatic in it? Lunatic soup. Lunatic soup. That's what they called it. It's because of what the alcohol made people do. People get a lot of alcohol in them. They change, don't they? Isn't that right? Many, many years ago, a friend of mine told me that his wife uh, would have soup for lunch. What did you have for lunch? Soup. Oh, okay. Then he found out later what the expression meant. She was dipping into the sauce. She was having an alcoholic lunch. And so she told him she was having soup for lunch. Anyhow, that has nothing to do with this sermon. It's just something interesting I thought you might like to know. So if anyone ever talks to you about lunatic soup, you know kind of what they're talking about. Anyhow, back to the message here. Back to this story. This is a pretty sad story about what this boy and his family went through. But some people think the boy was having epileptic seizures. And, you know, it really looked like it, but there was actually something more involved. It was more than just an epileptic seizure. I'd like you to put your finger there in Matthew 17 and turn to the right to Mark chapter 9. So you won't go very far till you hit the gospel of Mark. Chapter number 9, we have sort of the parallel story in the gospel of Mark. We have a similar story, only we learn a little bit more here. In uh, chapter 9 and verse 17... Let's see. One of the multitude, now we're in Mark 9, 17. One of the multitude answered and said, Master, and he's referring to Jesus here, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. Now this is certainly something different. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth. And pineth away. And I spoke to thy disciples that they should cast him out. Cast who out? The dumb spirit. And they could not. This dumb spirit was a demon. The father loved his son. And the father recognized there's something more here than just epilepsy. There's something more here than just what you know the doctor can fix. I'm sure this, this father would have gone to see physicians... And said, is there anything you can do for my boy? Maybe they tried some things and nothing seemed to work. In desperation, the father hears about Jesus being in town. And he brings his son. Where's Jesus? Well, he's up there on top of the mountain. Can I go see him? No, but he'll be down soon. And so the disciple says, well, what's the problem? Well, it's my boy here. And I'm sure that the boy was already there exhibiting, you know, shaking and and uh, the visible signs of having a demon inside of him. And so the, the disciples recognized that, that this boy was demon-possessed, and they, they tried what they could, and it didn't work. And we're going to find out why in just a moment here. But the father knew that the boy was demon-possessed. Now, back in Matthew 17, by the way, we're going to go back to Mark 9 in a minute. But in Matthew 17... And we'll look at verse 15. The father said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed. That means painful troubles. 
painful, not just troubles, painful troubles. He's sore vexed. Folks, can you imagine what it must be like, what it would be like living in a home where the boy is demon-possessed? Can you imagine what that would involve? You couldn't leave any sharp kitchen knives out on the table. You had to have the doors bolted at all times. You couldn't have anything out that could be used as a weapon. You'd go to sleep at night thinking, is he safe in his bed? Is he going to wake up in the middle of the night? Is he going to get up and do something? This family, I think, was living in fear. I think this family was devastated. I think this father was absolutely heartbroken. And walking down the street, others would look at him. How would that father feel? Oh, I know what they're thinking. They're condemning me. They're condemning me because of my boy. They want nothing to do with me because of my boy. That's got to be devastating. It has to be. Wow, living with a boy who's demon-possessed. How do you get demon-possessed? That's a good question. You know, generally, people will get demon-possessed if they open themselves up to demonic things. And that's why you and I should stay as far away from demonic things as possible. Don't think that going to get your palm read by a palm reader is just a little bit of nonsense. There's demonic stuff there. If you have a Ouija board in your home, you would be wise to go home today and destroy it. Do not give it to the thrift store or the Salvation Army. Destroy that thing. Get rid of it. There's all kinds of demonology out there. You know the tarot cards with those awful pictures on them? The people who say they can predict your future? That stuff is demonology. Stay as far away from that as you can. Get rid of anything that's demonic out of your home. Well, my guess is that this boy somehow must have gotten involved. Maybe there were some neighborhood boys who were involved in it. And this boy went too far. He got, he got demon-possessed. Now in verse 15, the father said, Oft times he falleth into the wa- fire. He falleth into the fire and oft into the water. The, the boy, he didn't have any control. It was the demon inside him either trying to destroy the boy or trying to ruin the whole family. Again, can you imagine? You, know, you can't even go to the beach because if you take your eyes off your son for two seconds, he's charging headlong to drown himself in the water. You can't have a campfire because the boy will throw himself headlong into the campfire. What kind of a life is that? You've got to admit, this is a, a pretty desperate situation. It's really bad. And no wonder this man came and with tears, he approached the Lord Jesus and said, please help me, help me. Now, with all that in mind, look back in the chapter in verse 4. Peter, James, and John at this point were up on top of the mountain. They had no idea what was going on down below. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make 
Here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. Because remember, Jesus met with Moses and Elijah and they were, they were talking. And Peter thought, this is the greatest thing. We call this a mountaintop experience where you have just the most incredibly wonderful time with the Lord Jesus. The fellowship is sweet. Oh, maybe if there would have been singing and music, it would have been the best. Maybe if someone had given a devotional, it would have been just wonderful to hear the Word of God. We call it a mountaintop experience. You and I, we come to church on Sundays and we get blessed. But here's the truth. We can't stay here all week long till next Sunday. We can't remain here. The reason is because down in the valley, there are sin-sick boys that need help. Throughout this week, there are people that you will, you will meet that need help, that need encouragement, that need prayer, that need counsel, that need Jesus. There's work to be done. The Lord Jesus didn't stay up on top of Mount Tabor forever with His three disciples because Jesus knew what was waiting at the foot of the mount. There's a good lesson there for you and for me. People need the Lord. They need help. And they need us to help them. So we move to verse 16. The man said, I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him. So there again we learn that the disciples tried but they, they couldn't do anything. In verse 17, Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Jesus was not talking about his 12 disciples. He was talking about the multitude that had gathered. These were Jewish men and women that had already seen his miracle working power. A number of chapters before chapter 17, way back in chapter 4, Jesus was in that area. He began his ministry in that Galilee area. He was already healing people. And in chapter 4, they were bringing lunatics to him at that time. These miracles were supposed to attest to who he was. He was God in the flesh. He was the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed of God. He was the Savior. He performed many miracles for them. And yet still they had no faith. They had no faith in him for who he really was. That's why Jesus saying to the Father and to the whole multitude, O faithless and perverse, generation. The word perverse means twisted, as in twisted away from the truth. And that's what a lot of people do with the truth, is they twist it away. They don't let the Bible speak for itself. They come to the Bible with preconceived ideas. They try to make the Bible say what they want it to say. People who deny the deity of Jesus Christ pervert or twist the truth. You know, it's so typical of religions that concentrate on the smallest thing and they miss the biggest thing. We've had it happen even to us. We've had, on the occasion, someone come into our church and start criticizing, maybe, the, maybe they might come in and criticize the fact that we have chairs and not pews. And they would say, don't you know that chairs are too worldly? Of course, don't ask them if they have chairs in their home. They wouldn't like that. 
You need pews, not chairs. And their concentration is on what we're, we're sitting on. And yet when I ask them, are you involved with the Great Commission? Are you supporting missionaries around the world? Are you yourself letting your life, sh life light shine that others would, would see the Savior? Then they get pretty quiet. And years ago, I remember a man who came from uh, another part of B.C. and he was visiting in our church. And he was a little bit critical. After the service, I got talking to him, a little bit critical. And he was telling me, I asked him what church he, he came from, he told me. So I put the question to him. How many missionaries does your church support? Do you go out on a regular basis with the gospel in your, in your city? And he was very quiet. Here's another example of a man who, who majored on the minor. And he missed what it's all about. Can you imagine someone so focused on one tree that they can't see the forest? Can you imagine someone focused on the molecule and yet they can't see the whole body in which the molecule is a part of. And religions are doing that, and they've always done that. The Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day were doing that. They were reinterpreting the Mosaic Law and arguing and arguing and arguing about it. You run into someone who argues religion, get away from them. You don't need that. The world today is angry. The people of Canada tend to be angry. I've never known Canada Canadians to be so angry as they are today. And it's not just Canadians, it's Americans as well. I think that it's around the world. The world is angry. Angry at government, angry at COVID, angry at restrictions, angry at taxes, angry at the, the rising price of food at the grocery stores, angry at the fact that they can't get certain foods anymore, angry at the fact that they go to the, the pumps and it's now $2.04.9 you know, for one liter of gas. People are getting angry. That's the name of the game today. And it's spilled right over into the Christian religion. And we have a lot of Preachers of anger out there. And that ought, ought to be. I mean, when we come to the house of God, we ought to get refreshed. We ought to get blessed. We ought not to be whipped into a frenzy and made angry at our government. And we got that kind of thing happening. And they're making news headlines. We've had people leave our church because we don't jump on that bandwagon. Because we don't believe it's our calling. We believe that we're called to peace. We believe that we're to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. And that's not their calling, so they leave our church. Well, c'est la vie. We continue being what God wants us to be. Well, look at verse 18. Jesus rebuked the devil, that's the demon inside the boy, and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Wow. Well, if you've still got your marker there in Mark chapter 9, you can look at it in verse number 20. And they, they brought him, that's the boy, unto him, that's Jesus, they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. That's got to be a pathetic sight, particularly for the father. And have all these people, and many of those people would have been his townsfolks that would have known him. There's his boy doing it again. Tearing, foaming, gnashing, pining away. 
Maybe some vulgarities were coming out of his mouth as well. We don't know. Well, back in chapter 18 of Matthew, the father admitted that he did not have a lot of faith. Actually, I'll read it out of Mark chapter 9 and verse 24. Straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And the father was saying, I've got a problem. Lord Jesus, I've got within me faith and I've got doubt. I'm a mixed up guy. Part of me wants to believe and part of me doesn't want to believe. That's the condition the father found himself in. He was a man of little faith. He didn't have much faith. Kind of sounds like a lot of us. We have some faith, but then we have doubt. Well, I know God can do this miracle, but has he ever done it? Have I ever seen him do it? Will he? Would he? I know he can, but does he really want to? And so we're mixed up. We have faith and we have doubt, all living inside us at the same time. Well, a lesson for us. Boy, I'm going back to Mark a lot here. Chapter 9 is in verse 23. The Lord Jesus said unto this father, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. God in the flesh said those words. God said... If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. There's a lesson for us. We need to be men and women of more faith. We really do. But I'm happy to say to you that even a little bit of faith will go a long way. I'm going to show that to you here. If you look in chapter 18 and verse, uh, sorry, chapter 19. I'll get it right. Chapter 17. I'll just, how about I just say all the chapters until I hit the right one? Chapter 17 and verse 18. That's where we have Jesus rebuking. The demon went out. The child was cured. Now on the heels of that, verse 19, came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? The disciples honestly couldn't understand. Why couldn't we have done that? And here's the simple answer in verse number 20. Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. You see that? Even the disciples had unbelief inside of them. The disciples, yeah, all those great guys, maybe with the exception of Judas, but all the other 11, they were good, good men. But in them dwelt faith and doubt. I suggest to you this probably the same uh, case with all of us here today. We have in us faith, but we also have doubt. Sometimes it's more doubt than faith. Sometimes it's more faith than doubt. But they seem to coexist somehow, like cat and dog, if you will, within us. The opposite of faith is doubt. In the book of James, eh, you needn't turn there, but I will read this for you. James chapter 1. And verse number 6. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. 
a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. A double-minded man, what's that? It's a man with faith and with doubt. Faith and doubt. And they're sort of 50-50. If you have more faith than you have doubt, if you've got 60 faith and 40 doubt, then you can do something. You're going someplace. But as long as you have equal parts, you're kind of caught between the horns of a bull. You're not going to get anywhere. And particularly if you have more doubt than faith, you're, you're going to fall away. So you at least have to have a little more faith than you have doubt. The Lord Jesus said something amazing to them in verse 20, and I want you to see it again. For verily I say unto you, now read these words. You got it open? Verse number 20. Read the words of the Lord Jesus together. If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed. Now I don't think we're all reading here. I don't hear enough voices. Let's try it again, okay? All together. If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. That's God who said those words to us. God came down to earth. His name was Jesus. And he said to us, If you have faith uh, as a grain of mustard seed, you say, What's that? I'm going to show you. Do you have that picture? Put that picture up. That's a finger. On the end of the finger is a mustard seed. That's what it looks like. If you were to take your ballpoint pen and to put a dot on the end of your finger, the mustard seed is not much bigger than that dot. We could say a head of a pin. That's a tiny, tiny little thing. Jesus is teaching his disciples and us an important message today. You don't need a truckload of faith to do something great for God. You just need a little bit of faith. Why is that? Why do you only need just a little bit of faith? Because the power is of God. You supply the faith. God supplies the power. Obviously, the bigger your faith, the more power is going to flow through. But all it takes is just a tiny bit to do something great. Do you know what plutonium-239 is? What is plutonium-239? What do they make with plutonium-239? Anyone want to guess? I, I heard mumbling today again. Bombs. Yeah, don't ever say that word at the airport. They make these... Weapons of mass destruction. These incredible bombs they make out of uh, uh, plutonium-239. Nuclear bombs is what they make. It doesn't take much. In your pocket or purse, maybe you have a nickel. A Canadian nickel. If you do, don't take it out. But can you imagine two nickels? Two nickels worth of plutonium-239 is equal to 150 tons of dynamite. Two nickels worth. Plutonium-239 looks like a gray-silver metallic. It looks kind of like lead, like a chunk of lead or solder or something like that. That's all it looks like. It's nothing pretty to look at. 
But that thing has got incredible power. Plutonium-239, two nickels worth will destroy everything on six and a half acres of land. Six and a half acres of land. Everything is destroyed. It's incredible, the power. The Lord Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, which would have been Mount Tabor, the one they were just at, remove yonder, you know, go jump in the lake, and it would obey you. Nothing shall be impossible to you. It only takes a little bit of faith. Why? Because the power behind it is God's power. It's like it only takes a little pin to pop a balloon, right? You don't need a big gun with a great big bullet in it to pop a balloon. You just need a tiny pin, right? You just need a little bit of faith in order to see God's power do some great things. So, verse 21, Jesus says, Howbeit this kind, and he's referring to the boy with the demon in him, goeth not out but by prayer and fasting which is kind of what Jesus and Peter, James, and John had been doing up on the Mount of Tabor right then and there. I want to remind you, my Christian friend, I want to remind you that you have access to God's tremendous power. You are not expected to live life in your own wisdom, your own strength, your own resources, your own abilities, your own fortunes, your own mental powers, you're not expected to. You have access to God's tremendous power in order to live an extraordinary life. The question is, are you using it? It's there. It's there waiting for you. What are you doing about it? Are you using it? If you have a great need in your life, this father had a great need in his life. If you have a great need in your life, one that's causing you grief, or sickness, or pain. You need to use your little grain, your mustard seed-sized grain of faith. Don't wait until tomorrow, or next week, or next month. Start today, today, and start exercising faith in God's promise to deliver you. Remember, it's His power that's going to come through for you. It's not so much the grain of mustard seed. That's just the portal through which the power will come. It's God's power who will do the work for you. There's a story of someone who prayed for the great power of God to help them with their lives. It's the story of Joni Erickson Tada. Joni was an athletic Christian teenager who, who got paralyzed from the neck down at the age of 17 from a swimming accident. She was unable to move her shoulders, her arms, her hands, her, her legs, her feet. She was a quadriplegic. She was unable and completely dependent upon her family and friends for her daily needs. You can imagine, yes, she got depressed. Who wouldn't? She felt helpless. She felt trapped in her own body. So Joni turned to God in prayer for God's help. And she prayed for God's power to help her overcome her limitations and to use her life for His glory, to live an extraordinary life. And through her faith, her mustard seed-sized grain of faith, Joni discovered a new talent she didn't realize she had 
for painting and for writing. And she eventually became a best-selling author, a speaker and an advocate for people with disabilities. But most importantly, she used her life, her newfound fame, to direct people to seek out a personal relationship with God by coming through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the power of faith. That's the size of a mustard seed of faith. Folks, you and I, we, we sometimes we get so hung up about money. You have money troubles? Oh, I got money troubles. Could you use more money? Boy, I could use more money. We get so hung up about money problems. And the answer is not how much money we have. The answer is not how much money we don't have. The answer is how much faith we have in God. That's our answer. It makes no sense to the world. The world says, well, faith is fine, but you've got to have money. We have an answer for that. Money is fine, but you've got to have faith. It's a whole different way of living, isn't it? We have incredible power waiting for us. You see, God owns all the money in the world. And God is still looking for people and for churches that will put their trust in him to see a miracle. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8 says that God is able to make all grace abound toward you so that ye having all sufficiency in all things may abound unto every good work. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 says that God is able to, to do exceeding, abundantly, above all you could ever ask or think. It's God's power. It's not us. We provide the faith. He provides the power. Our church, as a church, we've been talking about condominiums, buying a, a condominium or two condominiums. And it's more a matter of faith than it is of money. Let me ask you, that uh, paper I gave you with this survey on it, where you fill out how many bricks you think you could, you could buy. If God told you to put in there anything you wanted to, because he'll supply the money, what would you put in there? If God said to you, don't worry about the money, I'll give you the money. You just put down how many bricks you think you would like to buy, and I'll give you the money for it. How many bricks would you put down? You see, that's what faith is. Where we go to God and say, God, what do you want me to do? How many bricks do you want me to write down? Do you want me to write down one brick? Do you want me to write down a dozen bricks? What do you want me to do? God, is there anyone in, amongst my family or friends, is there anyone that I could get in touch with, call, visit, send an email and ask them, tell them about our need? Is there anyone that I could get in touch with about buying a brick? See what God tells you. Our problem is we don't go to God too much, do we? We just kind of look in our pocket, our purse, our checkbook, you know, our bank balance. Huh, let me think, well, what can I do here? We're not doing it right. We need to go to God and say, what do you want me to do? That's what faith is all about. So I'm saying this. We supply the faith. God supplies the power. We want to see God do a miracle. True, but are we willing to do our part to pray and to buy some bricks. I'd like to encourage you about that, by the way. One last thing I want to encourage you about. There's something more important than bricks, more important than condominiums, more important than church buildings, and that's the salvation of a soul. If I was holding here in my hand the winning ticket 
for the latest lottery. I don't know what it is. Let's say it's $40 million. And I was holding in my hand this ticket. And it was the winning ticket for $40 million. And I said, who here wants the ticket? Well, you know, maybe we'd be too shy to put up our hand. But in our hearts, we'd be putting up our hand, both hands, both feet. Yeah, I wouldn't mind having a ticket. Well, there's only one hitch. I'll give you the ticket. But the day after you get the money, you die. Well, wait a minute. (laughs) What's the sense in having a ticket if I'm going to die? Well, how about this? You can have the ticket. You won't die. You'll just be like Joni Erickson Tata. You'll be a paraplegic from your neck down. You, you won't have, you'll be trapped in your body for the rest of your life. But here you can have the ticket. You might not want the ticket. You say, well, what good is that? I ask you, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul in hell? What, what goodness is that? What profit is that? What profit is it if you win $40 million and you die and end up in hell? Forever and ever and ever. You see, that's, that's, that's not a deal. There's no profit there. That's why we need the Lord. That's why every man, woman, and young person on the face of God's green earth needs Jesus Christ as his or her personal Savior. Because our sin has bought us a ticket to hell. God came to earth. His name was Jesus. He paid the demands of divine righteousness. Justice was poured out on Jesus on the cross. He paid what we owe in hell. And now the offer is this. Whosoever will may come. Whoso hath the Son, that's Jesus Christ, hath life, that's eternal life. Whoso hath not the Son of God hath not life. That's why it's very important that every one of us make sure, make sure, make sure that Jesus is in your heart, that you've repented of your sin and you've asked him, please, Lord Jesus, won't you come into my heart, be my savior. You see, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray now. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.